Welcome to DAC Beechcroft's Lawcast. This is the fourth Lawcast we've put together, focusing on the effect of the coronavirus pandemic on working life and its likely legacy for the future. I'm Alex Locke and I lead DAC Beechcroft's National Employment, Pensions and Immigration team. And in this episode, I'm talking to Neil Barn, the partner who heads up the DAC Beechcroft Pensions team, and Rebecca Smith, the partner who leads our pension litigation practice. Hi Alex, happy to join you on this episode. Hi Alex, thanks for asking me to contribute. With lockdown continuing, and likely to do so for some weeks to come, much of the focus has been on day-to-day issues such as the job retention scheme, working from home, and redundancies and restructuring. Retirement and pensions for many seems far off and probably less pressing than keeping work going. But pensions and pension schemes face significant issues as a result of the past 12 months of economic and health disruption. In this lawcast, we've chosen to look at a number of the pension issues arising as part of the legacy of COVID-19. Today, we will look at three issues pension contribution and salary sacrifice issues, pension-related redundancy issues, and pension issues which may arise as a result of an employee's unfortunate death in service. Neil, if I can turn to you first, by way of introduction, can you summarise the position on pension contributions under the government's forthcoming job retention scheme? Yes, of course, Alex. As we know, the introduction of the new scheme has been postponed because the coronavirus job retention scheme has been extended until the end of April 2021. The key point is that the government is not going to provide a grant to pay for employer pension contributions under the new scheme. So under the new scheme, from the 1st of May 2021, employers will be liable to pay pension contributions under the auto-enrolment legislation on an employee's normal contracted wage for time worked, as well as employers' national insurance contributions. Employers will also be required to deduct the employee's pension contributions, as well as any income tax and NI contributions for which employees are liable. The employer will also be liable to pay employer pension contributions under the auto-enrolment legislation, specifically on the two-thirds of the usual wage paid by the employer, i.e. both the employer and the government top-up under the job support scheme, for the time not worked by employees, as well as employers' NI contributions. Similarly, the employer will deduct the employee's pension contributions under the auto-enrolment legislation from that two-thirds usual wage, as well as the income tax and employees' NI contributions. This is all subject to an employee's option to opt out of auto-enrolment and pension scheme membership if they believe that their own pension contributions have become unaffordable. If an employee reduces their contributions below the statutory minimum, opts out or ceases active membership, then they must be re-enrolled back into the pension scheme at the next re-enrolment date as long as they meet the criteria, unless the employers stop making contributions within the 12 months before the re-enrolment date. Then the employer doesn't have to re-enrol them, although they might still choose to do so. Thanks, Neil, for that very comprehensive overview. Now, we're not going to go through the basics of salary sacrifice today, as we will assume that everybody has that understanding. 
But that said, Neil, can you recap the central principle of salary sacrifice? Sure. Thanks, Alex. A salary sacrifice arrangement between an employer and employee involves an, an employee agreeing to give up a certain amount of salary in exchange for certain non-cash benefits. These can include a range of in-kind benefits such as childcare vouchers or bikes. But today, we're specifically looking at contributions into a pension scheme. Once the employer has agreed with an employee how much of their salary will be sacrificed, the sacrificed amount will be made as additional employer pension contributions and take-home pay is effectively reduced by that amount, resulting in a reduction of income tax and national insurance on earnings for the employee and the employer benefiting by paying less in NI. So we can see that in normal times, there are real benefits to both parties in such an arrangement. But can you explain how the coronavirus has impacted on those salary sacrifice arrangements? Sure. However, before we start to answer that question, it's important to remember that salary sacrifice agreements are essentially contractual arrangements between employers and their staff. and They literally vary from employer to employer. So the issues which arise in respect of salary sacrifice will also vary. As a consequence, it's important that advice is taken on this subject. The starting point is that employers must continue to pay in contributions for their furloughed employees, but have to recalculate those employer pension contributions in cases where employees have entered into a salary sacrifice agreement and they're then furloughed on reduced pay. It's also worth noting here, unlike what, uh, what is proposed under the new scheme, as we've already mentioned, government grants are received by employers under the current job retention scheme and they cover employer automatic enrolment pension contributions up to the statutory minimum of 3% of band earnings. During the pandemic, some employees have inevitably decided to opt out of pension scheme membership, although we've noted that employers are not allowed to encourage or induce employees to do this. However, this is less likely to be the case with employees who are under salary sacrifice schemes, where under the rules, pension contributions can't be deducted from furlough grants. And the basic contractual legal position is that pension contributions must come from the employer, as the employee has given up some of their salary in return for a pension contribution by the employer based on notional pre-sacrifice pay. The most important question to be answered with any salary sacrifice contractual agreement is how employer contributions are affected by a reduction in salary under the coronavirus job retention scheme. Under most salary sacrifice agreements, the pension contribution is a percentage of the notional pre-sacrifice salary. Once the employee is furloughed, the employer will have to work out and use the notional pre-sacrifice salary to be able to calculate pension contributions. All of this is completely dependent on the contractual position, so employers should, if they haven't already, seek advice on the specific contractual obligations which they've entered into as part of a salary sacrifice arrangement. Different contracts could also mean that different provisions apply to individual employees. A worst-case scenario for employers would be where the contractual position under salary sacrifice is that the required employer contributions remain based on pre-furlough pay for an employee, even though they are within the scope of the job retention scheme. Okay, so how has the pandemic generally affected salary sacrifice and pension planning? 
Even taking into account potential salary sacrifice complications, as a general principle, if a furloughed employee's salary has been cut, it's likely that their pension contributions have also been reduced. Some employees may want to be removed from the salary sacrifice arrangement if doing so increases their take-home pay. HMRC has confirmed that COVID-19 is classified as a life event, which means that individuals can opt out and also means that the terms of the salary sacrifice arrangement can be changed by updating the employment contract, provided that written agreement is received from the employees concerned. As the pension scheme rules are separate from any contractual salary sacrifice arrangement, if a salary sacrifice arrangement is ended, the pension scheme rules will continue to apply and also the requirement for employer contributions of 3% as an automatic enrolment minimum. It should also be noted that any changes made to salary sacrifice arrangements on or after the 19th of March 2020 do not affect the calculation of the reference wage when working out the grant under the coronavirus job retention scheme. Okay, so it sounds like employers and employees are going to have to keep on top of a number of different schemes and a number of different sets of rules and obligations. But if we can turn now to look briefly at pensions and redundancy, given that many employers are making redundancies and restructuring, are there any headline issues that you'd like to raise in relation to that? Yes, Alex. To start with, it's a given that employees cannot be made redundant or given a notice of redundancy while their employer is claiming for them under the new job retention scheme. That doesn't mean that employers can't take employees out of the job retention scheme and then make them redundant, or of course make other employees redundant. In a previous lawcast, we've discussed how job retention scheme grants cannot be used to fund redundancy payments or any part of the employee's notice period. As many listening will know, members can ask an employer to pay some or all of their redundancy payment as an employer contribution to their pension arrangement. In redundancy, it may be possible to reduce taxable income significantly through these additional pension contributions, with the pension contribution effectively extending the employee's basic rate tax band. If such an additional pension contribution is paid into a pension scheme, and it takes individual over their annual allowance, it might be possible to use carry forward of unused annual allowance from previous years in order to avoid an annual allowance charge. A practical consequence of rising COVID-19 related redundancies is that some employees have found themselves in an early retirement scenario which they didn't expect. A detailed consideration of the relevant pension issues for employees on this subject is the province of a financial advisor rather than a pensions lawyer. But I'd highlight one potential pitfall for anyone who plans to resume work and pension saving after having hit minimum retirement age and taken some of their pension pot. By taking any amount above the tax-free lump sum which is currently permitted, an individual may inadvertently trigger a reduction in their future pension savings annual allowance to no more than £4,000 a year. And that's something to be very careful about. Yeah, thanks, Neil, and thanks for highlighting that. We're now going to discuss some of the issues that arise for HR and the trustees of a workplace pension scheme when an employee or former employee passes away. As I said before, I'm joined by Rebecca Smith, who's a partner in our professional and commercial risk team and who specialises in pensions law. 
Rebecca's got a wide range of experience advising both trustees and businesses on these issues. Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks, Alex. I'm really pleased to be part of this and hopefully provide your listeners with a little bit of insight into some key issues, which sadly more businesses are facing in the pandemic. I thought we could look in particular at the issues arising on the payment of death benefits when an employee or former employee has passed away and their pension scheme provides for a survivor's pension or lump sum payment. Before we start, Alex, I just wanted to say that this is a constantly developing area. And I think if our listeners could only gain one thing from this podcast, it should be that the position which exists today in relation to death benefits has developed considerably over recent years. And so policies formed even four or five years ago may need to be reviewed and refreshed to reflect this and the increasing complex nature of modern lives. Not only does having an up-to-date and robust process help with the efficiency and confidence in the process itself, it can benefit the morale of those impacted and, importantly, reduce the risk of a successful complaint to the pension ombudsman. Okay, so what, what are we getting at here when we're talking about old policies not being fit for purpose given our more complex modern lives? First, let me say it's really important to appreciate that under a pension scheme, it's the trustee rules which um, govern what takes place. And the trustees have a discretion regarding the payment of lump sums and dependent pensions. This discretion is theirs. And while there are important things and forms like the deceased expression of wishes forms, which are highly relevant, the trustees are not bound by them. In other words, the trustees must exercise their discretion properly which requires them to take into account all the relevant factors and not take into account irrelevant factors. This is policed by the pensions ombudsman, who ultimately deals with complaints against trustees um, on this issue when disgruntled potential beneficiaries refer a matter to them. What I mean by policies not being fit for purposes is that many of the policies don't take into account recent decisions by the pensions ombudsman, which in the past few years have dramatically increased the burden on trustees and HR departments who are often drawn in to help advise on a particular employee's circumstances or gather information for the trustees. We're seeing many cases where it would have been possible to avoid issues which later arise if the key policies and guidance documents had been updated. For example, if proper documented procedures regarding locating potential financial dependents had been put in place. The Ombudsman also expects much more openness and transparency in the decision-making process, all of which needs to be properly documented. Alex, you also mentioned um, the second trend, which I touched on, which is increasingly complex lives. And this is something we've been seeing for a while. It's not just the events of last year, but those tragic mortality figures we're all aware of have really highlighted um, some of these developing trends. It's increasingly common for couples to live in committed, long-term, financially dependent relationships without ever getting married or entering into any form of civil partnership. It's also more common for couples, whether legally joined or not, to separate into new relationships. So when someone dies, there can be a number of ex-partners and a current partner for the trustees to consider. Other than partners, the most common form of dependency is children who are dependent on their parents. Modern families may mean that the deceased had children with several partners, sometimes spread over many years. They may also have taken on responsibilities for stepchildren. And I've seen cases where even nieces and nephews have been uh, the financial responsibility of the former employee. 
one of the other things that we're increasingly seeing is intergenerational dependency that the trustees need to explore. Parents, in-laws and siblings, overall the situation can be very complex. The reality of today is that people are involved in many associated and sometimes quite subtle networks of financial dependency. The key fact here is that this has massively increased over the last couple of decades and the trustees have to take the necessary steps to identify and consider those potential beneficiaries, many of whom often have conflicting and competing interests. When this is the case, especially in the context of death benefits, it creates a new kind of situation which trustees need to be guided through, not just legally, but practically too. Employers and HR departments can be drawn into these situations and former colleagues too, and unsurprisingly, it can be very emotional and even disruptive for them. Everyone needs to see the trustees acting in a fair and reasonable way. After all, it's not only relevant for their colleagues, their deceased colleagues, but also potentially for their own families and their own peace of mind. Thanks. So I can see that there have been some quite profound and complex demographic and societal changes, which you set out. Thank you. So what effect has this had on the approach that you would recommend? And why does this matter for trustees? Oh, Alex, there are lots of points you and I could discuss now. But let me just focus on a few particularly common issues to give you a sense of what I mean. Undertaking appropriate inquiries of potential beneficiaries is essential. But even the process of investigating when someone has passed away can be very uncomfortable and end up in situations far outside those undertaking those inquiries are used to and indeed their expertise. There is good news because we now have quite a lot of guidance on what good practice looks like from a variety of pension ombudsman's decisions over the last few years. The pensions ombudsman has quite clearly set out that it expects trustees to make appropriate investigations and seek appropriate evidence from potential beneficiaries. Failing to do so can result in the pensions ombudsman telling the trustees to go back and do it again only properly this time. Therefore, having guidance on what information and evidence should be sought and from whom that can be sought can be really helpful from the trustees right from the outset. Another issue is that when the trustees have all the evidence, they need to then seek to apply the scheme rules impartially. But these are complex circumstances and trustees can be forced to make very difficult decisions concerning what evidence to favour and who should benefit as a result. Sometimes these decisions can rest on extremely fine distinctions which, whilst they are often within the trustees' discretion, can result in someone who's not been awarded benefits feeling really upset and angry. Again, good guidance is required, but in very difficult situations, it might well be appropriate for the trustee to seek bespoke advice too. My final example that I thought I'd touch on is that the pension ombudsman has dramatically increased the requirements on providers to give reasons for their decisions to the impacted parties and to provide evidence of the processes which were followed during their investigations. The rationale behind this trend of transparency is so that the complainants can understand why a decision has been made and indeed enable them to evaluate whether they have any grounds for pursuing it further. This shift in approach came as quite a big shock to a lot of trustees and their advisors, as historically there was not a significant duty on trustees to take notes during minutes or otherwise create a reviewable audit trail. This matters now, as trustees are ultimately the ones whose decisions will be questioned and potentially challenged. So making sure they have good, up-to-date policies which are complied with can be critical to upholding their decision. 
it sounds like there are actually going to be few situations where you wouldn't want to take bespoke advice and there are quite weighty responsibilities on the shoulders of the trustees. Now you mentioned that a preemptive review can help mitigate some of those risks. Briefly, what would you recommend in that regard? Well, everything depends on the wording of the individual schemes. But on the whole, I would say that it's if you haven't looked at your policy in the last four or five years, it's sensible to have a look at it and perhaps involve some legal advice to make sure that it's up to date and is taken on board those recent pension ombudsman decisions and it's complying with the new criteria um, in terms of transparency and decision making and also the evidential um, gathering of information. Um, in addition to establishing revised policies, trustees can also benefit from updated guidance and training, just which walks them through these issues pragmatically. Ultimately, it will help them deliver a, a better outcome uh, and give them confidence in their own process and indeed maintain trust and confidence in the whole pension scheme itself. On a global level, this preemptive approach can reduce expenditure for them on disputes. It can stop investigations having to be repeated and it can cause a reduction in the associated stress and emotional burden that these disputes can create for all. Thanks. It sounds not dissimilar to the advice we give to employers in relation to contracts, employment and policies and procedures. Thanks, Rebecca. Unfortunately, time has now run out on us. In this podcast, we've looked at three issues pension contributions and salary sacrifice issues, pension-related redundancy issues, and pension issues which may arise as a result of an employee's death in service. Just remains for me to say a big thank you to Rebecca and Neil for joining me on this episode. You're welcome. Thanks, Alex. Good to chat. Thank you.